Tuesday, August 10th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. That means I have the high honor and privilege of introducing the stars of our show, three gentlemen we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would be Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. Hey, Bill, I, I, I missed you guys. Me too. Neil obviously did not miss us. He's silent. <laughs> it's been too long. I agree. As actually, gentlemen, I did the math on this. It's been 46 days with a better part of about 1,100 hours since we last convened. We last recorded this show in the last week of June. And a few things have happened in the time since, beginning with breaking news today. And that is the uh, very sudden, surprising, abrupt resignation of Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, last spring uh, to be exact, when Andrew Cuomo was a media darling. Uh, he and his brother Chris did uh, these rather clever little one-on-ones on CNN that either you adored or you hated, depending on your political views. Democrats are buzzing about Cuomo being replacing Joe Biden on the ticket, and here he is about 16 months later and now a political goner. Um, Neil, your thoughts on what this says maybe about this time of pandemic, where you can quickly ascend and you can quickly descend? Well, it's the ancient Greek story of hubris and nemesis, isn't it? I mean, to me, it was always bizarre uh, that Andrew Cuomo was lauded for his performance in the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, when in fact, New York State did disastrously badly. And in particular, a really large proportion of the early fatalities uh, in the pandemic were in elderly care homes, which uh, the state government had completely failed to protect uh, from the new coronavirus. So uh, what goes around comes around, whether there's a pandemic or not. And I think uh, the hubris reached a peak uh, when Cuomo published a book, apparently portraying himself as having done a terrific job in defeating the pandemic. So clearly his departure has nothing to do with that performance and everything to do with uh, his Me Too lapses. Uh, but I, I do think that he, he had it coming because it was true hubris to portray himself in that light. John, your thoughts? Well, if he had the hubris but hadn't been horribly, shockingly misbehaved around women, he'd, he'd still be that hero. It is kind of interesting, the vagaries of camp, cancel culture. Uh, Olympic Committee uh, officials were immediately sacked because of jokes made in the 1990s. And a lot of people stuck with Cuomo through a lot of stuff, uh, way far beyond what would have gotten anyone else canceled. But it is sad. It's sad that uh, you know we're, we're talking about his abysmal personal behavior or people's cancellation, as opposed to what Neil brought up. Our, our I would rather we fired our politicians over horrendous policy incompetence and governance incompetence, or or kept with them because they were good at such things. And, uh, you know, it makes for a nice salacious story, but it doesn't improve the quality of governance in the United States. And HR, you think there's a cautionary tale in here about politicians who write books? Well, I think maybe, I mean, uh, of course, true to form, you know, I'll, I'll be the optimist here to say that at least he was held accountable. And I think that, you know, I, I think back to that great discussion we had with Yuval Levin from AEI, who had this great insight and wrote this great book about how politics has become performative rather than formative. And, and certainly... You know, Andrew Cuomo was was uh, sort of so the, the, the prime example of performative leadership with those long press conferences in which he would say the same thing in 20 different ways. And everybody you know, really th thought it was wonderful. Uh, and then, as, as Neil said, when you looked at the actual record, it was quite disappointing. And I, I hope that 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 poor performance as a leader had some effect right on this decision. And and then maybe. This we we could use this to inspire others to hold leaders accountable and to demand better, better you know better policies, uh, rather than continue to perform for audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, gentlemen, something else that's changed in the 1100 hours since we last convened is COVID, the war on COVID. Uh, we recorded our show at the end of June. It was just a few days later that the President of the United States held an event at the White House, a 4th of July celebration, in which he declared that we're winning the war on COVID. Here we are a few weeks after that event, and you now have to wear masks here in Northern California. Uh, there's talk of vaccine, uh, vaccine uh, mandates. Nature, I want to get your thoughts on how the military would do that. It feels like we're regressing. It feels here in California, at least, like we're going back to spring 
spring of last year. John Cochran, you wrote a uh, piece for the, your Grumpy Economist blog on this, the title of which is called COVID Incompetence. Why don't you give us a distilled version of what incompetence is here? I'll try to distill because I'm still frothing at the mouth about the whole business. I, I, I put uh, the analogy like our, our public policy is like a toddler sent across the street to get a cup of sugar who gets to the front porch and then wanders away after following a puppy. Um, we're not even talking about the, the competent, the things we were talking about last spring, like testing, tracing, uh, effective non-pharmaceutical interventions. The, the entire thing seems to be, let's talk about mask mandates, the most symbolic and least effective. Uh, God forbid we talk, we shouldn't be doing lockdowns, but at least maybe, you know, disco parties aren't the smartest thing in the world. And of course, vaccines and, and the way vaccines work, we had a chance get everybody bloody vaccinated before it comes. That's the basics of public health. But our policy established just kind of wandered off. And, and we knew all along 30% of people were going to be really reluctant to do this. God forbid the FDA should make it actually approved. Uh, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers have an excuse. The FDA won't approve this thing, so it might be dangerous. But it, it just needed attention to the task at hand, which was get us vaccinated to the point of herd immunity. And that attention just, uh, you know, we went on to all the other things that Washington and our political. Now we're talking about vaccines finally, but the way this works is if you wait till in the middle of the spread to start doing something about it, you get wave after wave after wave. Uh, so then we talk about mandates without it. You know, let's start with. Uh, you know, just some incentive for people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, let people say, you can't step on my private property. You have a right to not get vaccinated, but you can't step on my private property without a vaccine. Uh, you know, you, we don't, we seem to jump between everything must be either forbidden or, or mandated, but there's a whole spectrum of, uh, you know, get in place incentives that if you want to participate in society, you're going to need to get vaccinated. All those policies had to get into place while we were talking last time and, and everyone just kind of said, oh, well, 30% don't want it, the heck with that, and let's hope for the best. We knew this was not gonna work. And just final point, we seem to be way behind even when we were last spring. Nobody's talking about competent public policy to stop the spread of a vaccine. We're talking about making six-year-olds wear masks and that's, and that's about it. Maybe someday after this thing has all gone away, we'll start putting in some mild vaccine requirements. But, uh, you know, we talked about getting an HR has a wonderful report on how we should get ready for the next one. Well, we're clearly not ready for this one. We're even behind where we were last spring. So I'll stop there. But it's just uh, it's America in retreat in uh, in Afghanistan and in COVID. We just kind of give up and let it rip seems to be the answer. Well, Neil, Neil, that's so. Have we given up? Well, of course, we, we are winning the war against COVID. I want to sound a more optimistic note than John, because uh, the definition of winning is the spread of a vaccination and the reduction of hospitalizations and deaths. And that is happening because of the extraordinary efficacy mm -hmm. uh, of the vaccines and particularly of the mRNA-based vaccines produced by Pfizer and Moderna. If you look at case numbers in states in the American South right now, they're rising as rapidly as they did in the worst wave, which was the one from around Thanksgiving into the new year. But if you look at uh, the hospitalizations and deaths numbers, they're really a lot better. They could be even better if we could vaccinate more people. And about this, John is completely right. Uh, everything else is noise. Uh, mask wearing is, is really not of enormous uh, importance because of the extraordinary contagiousness of the Delta variant. Uh, we, we know how this will play out reasonably well in the US because we've seen it play out already in the UK. Huge surge in cases when I was in the UK back in June, July, a good deal of panic, uh, particularly amongst public health officials. And then uh, the case numbers peaked much sooner than people expected. They've ticked up a little bit in the last uh, week or so. But uh, in reality, uh, things went much better in the UK in terms of hospitalizations than the models of the dreaded Imperial College, Neil Ferguson, uh, foresaw. And, and that's very comforting. The UK has more uh, of its population vaccinated than the US, closer to 60% than 50%. If the US keeps on going and can overcome vaccine hesitancy, then the victory over COVID 
can be achieved. Not that COVID can be eradicated, and it's very important that people understand this. It's not something you can eradicate because it exists in animal hosts. It will continue uh, to mutate and it will continue to infect and it will continue to make people sick uh, all over the world, even as we slowly and steadily increase the percentage of the population that's vaccinated. It's not going away. And in that respect, it's important to say it is a bit like influenza. Do you remember how many silly people said, oh, it's just like influenza at the beginning? Which was, uh, which was sort of wrong in, in the sense that it was going to be much worse than influenza, but it was right historically in that when influenza first really became a problem uh, for the human race in the 19th century and into the 20th century, there were huge waves of infections and hospitalizations and deaths. Then gradually over time, we got better at managing influenza until it became endemic and manageable and a seasonal phenomenon, uh, which we could vaccinate the vulnerable against. We're heading that way with COVID and slowly but surely we will get there. But one has to be realistic about the nature of a victory. <clears throat> victory in this case is not eradication. Victory is getting the number of hospitalizations and deaths down to a manageable level so that like influenza, it becomes background noise instead of front page news. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, I think this anal the analogy works. So we talked about really across this, so many episodes of, of Goodfellows between really medicine's long fight against disease and just the nature of war as well. Right. And, and your war as, as, as the, 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 the uh, Prussian philosopher of war said, Clausewitz in the, in, in the early uh, 19th century, it's a continuous interaction of opposites. Right. And, and so you can, you can gain the initiative with a vaccine, but if you don't consolidate your gains, there's going to be a counterattack by the disease. And this is, you might say are the, our equivalent of our dens offensive by the disease. Uh, but I, I, I believe with, uh, as Neil does, and I think John does, we all do that, that we are winning, uh, but we, we should actually be, must be more effective at this point, obviously in, in, uh, in, in extending the, extending the, the, the vaccine in the United States, but, but globally, because I think we all recognize that with the Delta variant is, is a case in point, right? And, and these other variants that are now emerging, uh, that we are, live in an interconnected world, right? And for us to get back to normal, it's gonna, it really takes a solution that, that has much broader reach than our own country. And then, and then also that we do have this federal system, right? That is a that, that is just a reality of this war. And and so what we need is an informed populace to to make the the right decisions for themselves. And 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 this is where I, I believe John is so right. And, and the blog his blog is just dead on. Is that we you know we vacillate between you know a, a mandate and resignation, right? There, there's plenty of room in between uh, to 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 you know to actually extend the the vaccine. To, uh, to do the kind of strategic testing that we know is also important to controlling the, the spread and then giving people confidence, right, in, 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 in a return to something closer to normalcy uh, and protecting our children's schools and so forth. So I, anyway, I, I just think that uh, that this is, is a, war, a war that's not over, but the definition of victory is important, as Neil's saying, uh, and a recognition that it, it, it's not going to be over for quite some time, right? We have to remain competitively engaged. I want to bring us back to one of the topics that we talk about a lot. Um, so first, what's going on? The Delta is, as they say, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Vaccinated people are getting it, but by and large are not getting sick. And with a reproduction rate of six, what that just means is it, it blasts through, everything is in high speed. So as I read what's happened in the UK, take the 30% who are unvaccinated, Delta blasts through them, you get to herd immunity and that's when the wave goes down. And, and uh, that's hardly a victory. That's <laughs> basically they wiped out the thirty percent battalion, while and, and the the rest uh, the rest stayed there. Um, and then, as Neil says, see you next February when the next variant uh, comes out, when uh, immunity uh, starts starts fading and so forth. It is amazing that the U.S. Uh, suffered five trillion dollars on budget, the worst uh, recession, a huge recession, enormous costs and is un was unwilling to, you know, you, you take your antibiotics for a week after you feel better, unwilling to do the smallest costs, the smallest public health outreach to try to finish the vaccination problem. And there is this phenomenon, who's not getting vaccinated and why are they not getting vaccinated? The, the media narrative likes to say, oh, it's all those troglodyte Republican anti-vaxxers, but that's not true. Uh, I looked up the numbers, only 10% of blacks are vaccinated. Uh, Hispanics, uh, you know, th th there's a, uh, a low income sort of a class uh, thing at, uh, as well. It's not just 
blame it all on Trump Republicans. And it's not just misinformation from the internet, though that's, that's something we need to talk about. That I, I cite a survey that said basically 30% of people said they were skeptical of it. Um, <laughs> some of them were Democrats who listened to Kamala Harris, who said, I'm not going to take a vaccine that Donald Trump put together. So misinformation comes all around. And uh, you know we keep, we keep talking about this effect of misinformation on the internet. How do you get people I know some people say, I'm not getting it because uh, who knows, whatever. Well, it doesn't help that the FDA hasn't certified it. it. doesn't help that there's all these conspiracy theories. Why do people believe conspiracy theories? Well, um, you got to be a little sympathetic. They've been lied to over and over again. Our agencies admit that they are shading things in order to, uh, to try to manipulate public psychology. Uh, and when you know the internet is censored, you start to believe that everything on the internet is false. Uh, even the true stuff. So I, I think there is a, a deeper problem here and why we hit 30% and then people stop getting vaccinated, even though it's it's free, just walk in, get the damn vaccine. Now. Actually, you know, part of the problem with vaccine hesitancy is that COVID-19 is not a sufficiently lethal disease to frighten people into getting vaccinated. And this is a key point. If it, if it was smallpox that we were dealing with, uh, the anti-vax movement would uh, would be gone pretty quickly because uh, you would see the absolutely catastrophic consequences of of letting your child contract smallpox. Uh, my friend Jared Cohen just published a nice piece in the uh, Boston Globe, pointing out that uh, smallpox was the problem for the founding fathers, uh, and they had the same arguments uh, for and against what was then called variolation. Uh, but those arguments ultimately were won. Because the alternative, the, the, the catching of smallpox was so horrendous. The reason that there can be credible vaccine hesitancy is that particularly for younger people, getting COVID is not lethal, uh, other than in a pretty tiny proportion of cases. And I think this explains vaccine hesitancy. People aren't very good at probabilities. They don't really understand what vaccine efficacy means. In fact, quite a significant proportion of educated people can't define what the uh, efficacy percentages mean. And so they, they do a very rough thing in their head, which is to say, well, there's a risk uh, of getting vaccinated and there's a risk of, of getting the disease. So uh, it's kind of a wash. So I'll just not get vaccinated. Uh, but actually they're getting that wrong because the risk of getting the disease is really much, much higher than the risk of getting the vaccines, which have been through phase three trials. Uh, and people don't understand that they can contract COVID, have symptoms, but then be stuck with it for a very long time. One of the things that, one of the many things that the public health authorities have singularly failed to do is to explain what a large percentage of people who've been infected have long COVID. And according to some uh, of the studies that have been done, it's up to a third of people have long lasting symptoms. And this includes young people. So I think the great failure has been to clarify to the public that the risks of getting this disease, regardless of your age, are, are really far, far higher than the risk of the vaccine. And that has been one of the failures that we've seen on both sides of the Atlantic. And it explains, I think, a lot of the vaccine hesitancy. And, and I, I, just point, I would just point out that it, it's all foreseeable, right? And you guys remember extolling the, the virtues and capabilities of Gus Perna, right? General Gus Perna, who was put in charge of the logistics effort for the vaccine, much pilloried in like the first 48 hours of the vaccine rollout. Uh, but then, of course, now recognize that, that that he and the task force did a phenomenal job in, in getting the vaccine out to everybody. But when he was asked, I think it was on 60 Minutes, uh, just prior to the vaccine rollout, what are you most worried about? And he said, what I'm most worried about is we're going to do a great job getting this, developing this vaccine, producing it at scale, getting it out, and not enough Americans will accept it. You know, And, and so I, I think this was a problem from the beginning. It didn't help the mixed messages from you know across the political spectrum. It didn't help, as Neil said, that, that people weren't educated in the way that, that that would have persuaded them, right, to take the to the vaccine. And, and hopefully now we can play catch up, right? I mean, this is I hope you're wrong about your point, John, and your block. You know, that we've just we've quit. I don't we can't quit yet. And um and but I, I think that this was all foreseen, sadly. Well, let me add to Neil's point too. Uh, you have to take the vaccine not when there are bodies in the streets, even if it were smallpox. 
you have to get the vaccine while it's the quiet moment beforehand. It takes a month to get your own immunity. And as public health matter, we got to get it, the vaccine before it comes. If a military analogy, you know, if you wait until the enemy has breached your uh, has breached your defenses in order to wake up and get going, it's going to be a bad war. You got to watch when they're getting there, when, when they're getting there, uh, they're marshalling their troops on the other side of the lines is when you got to wake up and start doing things. And, and the, as I... Uh, you brought up smallpox and other things. Uh, as I listen, I tend to listen to NPR while I'm driving. I've heard more references to the Tuskegee experiment as awful as it has been than I have to the miraculous victory over smallpox, polio, influenza, all the things that vaccines have done uh, that make our lives so much better than the misery of our ancestors. Uh, and part of this national narrative is not helping. Uh, when, you know, that when they interview people, why do you not take it? Well, they'll say things, they'll say Tuskegee quickly, but nobody seems to remember about the, uh, the, the uh, tremendous history of public health. So um, that national narrative going on is not helping either to understand uh, how useful, how wonderful these vaccines are. A couple more military metaphors, because I think I know where we're going with this, but it's actually a useful way to think about the problem. Uh, one is that the vaccines are, are like training uh, your body and military training is what makes armies effective in combat, right? HR, you wouldn't want to be commanding untrained troops in battle. Uh, a body that hasn't been vaccinated that encounters the virus is essentially an, an untrained army uh, encountering the enemy. And that, that's an important way to think about vaccination. Uh, again, I don't think that uh, we've done a, a taller good job of explaining to people how vaccination works. I'm really struck by uh, when I encounter uh, friends who are resistant to the vaccine, how poor their understanding is. This is a kind of basic failure of of education, but let me uh, let me do one of those things that people don't do nearly enough. Admit that I was wrong about something. Uh, it's quite a while ago now uh, that I had a conversation with my old friend Nicholas Christakis at Yale, one of the great authorities on on, on pandemics, whose book Apollo's Arrow I highly recommend. And uh, I asked him where he thought we were, and and he said, uh, quoting Churchill, uh, "This isn't the uh, beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning." And I said, "Oh." oh, come on, Nicholas, you're being far too pessimistic. It's surely the beginning of the end. Uh, uh, this must have been uh, early this year. But he was right. Uh, and I noticed Larry Brilliant, another extraordinarily influential figure in the field of epidemiology, making the same point in a piece in, in Foreign Affairs about the forever virus or the forever pandemic. And I've come round to the view that this is actually going to be a much longer war than I thought it would be when I was finishing my book, Doom, which uh, shockingly enough was a year ago when I had to put that book uh, to bed. My assumption then was uh, that we were, that the, that the end was in sight because of, of the efficacy of the vaccines, but it turns out I was wrong about that. This is going to take much, much longer in just the same way that it took us more than a century to master influenza insofar as we've been able to master it. There's a, I'll just, punctuate with there's a race between uh, evolution with exponential growth and bureaucratic inertia and uh, put put your money on evolution. Part of what Delta is doing is evolving around societies that uh, have put into place uh, distancing and vaccines uh, because you can transmit it with Delta. And so look for evolution to come back with, uh, with something interesting for us around next February. Okay, so Neil has talked about messaging on COVID, and he's right. But here's the question, gentlemen: What about COVID messengers? Now, we, uh, HR uh, mentioned at the beginning of the show, Yuval Levin, who was on Goodfellows uh, several months ago. Yuval talked about lack of confidence in institutions. Um, who can come forward and offer a credible message to reluctant, cynical Americans on vaccinations? But let me also throw this at the three of you. If I tasked each of you with convincing Americans to get a vaccination, what would be your quick pitch? How would you sell this? Gosh, well, I'll just, I'll just I'll tell you first. I mean, I think that that, that people have to recognize that it, that it is more than a personal decision. It's a decision that 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 uh, that if they don't take the vaccine, can place others in jeopardy, right? And and we talked about this at the beginning of the of the pandemic as well as the social responsibility associated with 
you know, if you have, for example, you know, elderly people with whom you're interacting, to be responsible to make sure that you minimize the chances of you contracting the disease back in the pre the pre-vaccine periods so that you don't place others at risk. I think the same is, is true. And the same is true because you don't want to infect children, obviously, and, and others that, that that we don't know, you know, what, what the effect might be of, of uh, you know, of the Delta variant and so forth. But also you don't want to risk going back to kind of, you know, the, the, the drag on our economy, you know, the, the changes in our lifestyle that we all abhor. So, you know, Neil mentioned the uh, kind of the training metaphor what training does in, in, in military units is it gives you confidence. What the vaccine, I think, can do in our society is give us confidence to return to something closer to, to normal life and normal economic activity and normal education experiences for our children. And so I think the, the appeal that I would make is, hey, we owe it to each other, right, to, to get to get beyond this and, and, and to maybe, maybe uh, ask them to inform themselves, to learn more about it, give them access to you know, to, to the, the, the vast body of, of evidence that, that the vaccine works, it's safe and just do it, you know, um, <laughs> would be my message. Okay. John. Um, I think our, uh, public authorities are making a mistake in focusing on recommendations, which are clearly politically influenced as opposed to facts and data. They're quick to tell us, uh, you know, we think six-year-olds playing foosball uh, should uh, put on masks and eight-year-olds who are um, playing poker should put on N95 masks. Uh, and, oh, wait, I just heard something from a politician who doesn't like that. No, we're going to change it. What, we, what we're dying for, what I can't find, is facts and data. Uh, where is, we, we still don't have random testing. So we don't know what's the prevalence of various kinds of things. How much does a mask help uh, either protect me or protect somebody else? Tell us how much the vaccines help with, with numbers that people can actually digest. Uh, just telling us facts and data uh, we, uh, rather than treating us like children who can't understand and, and the uncertainties of facts and data, rather than treating us like children who can't be told that sort of thing, but instead passing down politicized recommendations, I think would make people much more uh, trustworthy uh, of what's going on. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this question, Bill, because I've been trying to persuade people I know to get vaccinated, uh, including someone who works for me. And I've realized that nothing works uh, because they've actually uh, been vaccinated against the vaccine uh, by things that they've seen on the internet. Uh, and this brings me to the terrific work our, our colleague at Stanford, René de Resta, did on the anti-vax network, which existed long before COVID was heard of and has been a really pernicious source of disinformation online uh, for years, uh, leading to vaccine hesitancy, even with respect to diseases like measles that we thought long ago we'd brought under control through vaccination. Uh, so the terrible problem is that none of the arguments that you might think would work do work. Uh, example, uh, there have been lots of recent uh, videos of people uh, almost expressing as their dying wish regret that they didn't get vaccinated. And uh, these are not elderly people necessarily. Often there's stories of people in their uh, 40s or, or 50s who were healthy, but resisted getting the vaccine and then died of COVID. This doesn't work. It ought to work. You'd have thought that it's a straightforward inference. This person resisted getting the vaccine. They were in perfect health. They died. Surely I should therefore avoid that fate. This doesn't work because people have been inoculated uh, against this kind of argument by the things that they've read uh, online. So we have a very problematic uh, story here uh, that, that I know we've debated in the past. What do you do when there's a really powerful source of disinformation and misinformation online? Now, the, the impulse, which is often uh, uh, heard around the world is, well, take it down, start censoring uh, this harmful content. We have to go after the groups on Facebook that disseminate anti-vax propaganda. This is the very much the wrong approach to take uh, because that only uh, adds to the sense that, uh, that there's censorship at work that's trying to shut down the legitimate information that you need about the real truth about the dangers of the vaccine. Uh, and so one of the things I talked about with Audrey Tang in, in Taiwan was this, this fundamental problem, what do you do about disinformation? And, and her answer was interesting. She said, you have to mock it. She said, you don't take it down, but you ridicule it. 
Uh, and we, we've been very poor at making fun of anti-vax uh, arguments. Uh, we're never going to get them to go away. It's an extremely potent source of, of memes. Yeah. But but we could do a better job of, of ridiculing this. Frightening people into getting vaccinated doesn't seem to work. We, we know that from quite a lot of history of, of other diseases. Let me add one final point that I've been thinking a lot about. Imagine if there were no vaccines. Imagine if we were dealing with uh, COVID-19 and none of the vaccines had worked. Think how the future would look at this point and how, high, how much higher the death toll already would be. HIV AIDS, uh, a pandemic that occurred in our lifetime, could not be defeated by a vaccine. And as a result, more than 30 million people have died. That's 10 times, roughly 10 times the number who've died of of COVID. And, and that's, a, a, to me, a really powerful point, that in a counterfactual world without vaccines, the outlook for this war would be absolutely horrible. And most of us, in fact, would be waiting to contract COVID, uh, become very ill or die of it as we aged. Thank God that's not the world we're in. And, and thank God for vaccines. I would just add another, another element of persuasion might be to point out how uh, adversaries, rivals, and enemies are taking advantage of the anti-vax movement to magnify the, this, the, the, these points. I mean, uh, we know that China state-run media, for example, uh, is magnifying the, the anti-vax movement, putting out more disinformation. Why do they want to do it? Because they want to bring us down, right? They want to continue to polarize our society. They want us to continue to be sort of stuck in, uh, you know, in in the economic uh, doldrums associated with the uh, with the pandemic, at least in certain sectors of the economy. So, so I, I really, I really think tracing, you know, really the anti-vax movement back or showing the connections. Uh, with uh, with adversaries can help maybe as well. Let me just uh, uh, plug both of your point and add one. Um, I read early on that one of the places with the most vaccine hesitancy is Russia, because they were told by their government, you should take it, this works, it's safe. And everybody in Russia knows that everything in the news is a lie. So everyone immediately assumes the exact opposite. This is going to kill you. Uh, censorship has exactly the opposite effect on the anti-vaccine movement. But let me plug and plug in. And Neil, I want to ask you too, uh, you know, let's try with your friends how they might respond to just mild incentives. Now, I had a case uh, recently, a young, uh, I, I knew a, a young flight instructor who's, who was, oh, well, you know, I've heard about myocarditis, so I'm not getting the vaccine. The answer to which was, that's fine. You have every right not to get the vaccine, but you're not setting foot on this airport until you get the vaccine. And it took him about a, one day to come around to, well, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll get it too. You know, if you can't, you're, you have a, every freedom not to get the vaccine if you want. Let's not mandate it because then, of course, people get all upset about politics and government and so forth. But you want to set foot in a bar, get a vaccine. Uh, you, you know, you want to set, it, set any endorsed indoor, let's say, let's make it just private property, indoor public spaces. You want to set foot in there, you got to get a vaccine. It's going to cost you something. Uh, all of a sudden, I think uh, people might discover that uh, that maybe this isn't that they, they're counting right. Even why are we paying for people's health insurance who refuse to, who refuse to get vaccinated? Why are we paying for you know people's hospital stays who refuse to get vaccinated? Why are we uh, paying for their rent if they refuse to get vaccinated? All sorts of incentives can be given and allowed before you know government gives allow private parties to give incentives to make it uh, you know inconvenient not to be vaccinated. I think that would make a good sense and. Uh, much as I hate the word, little nudges can help. Um, I have relatives in the UK who report that how it works in the UK is the NHS calls you up and says, your appointment is Friday at three o'clock for your vaccine, show up. And, and that seems to be effective on people who can't get around to actually doing that. So I, I do think that um, one, there's a lot of bluster when it is free for people to bluster. But as it starts to cost them, even in just minor conveniences, uh, I, I think you could make a lot of progress. Okay. There's a lot more we can talk about COVID, and I think we're going to probably get into it the next show. So let's move on to our final topic today, and that's Afghanistan, which has also changed considerably in the last 1,100 hours. Um, let's start with the historians taking this on. Neil and HR, uh, I'd like you to offer two things here. First of all, just kind of briefly walk us through the U.S. experience in Afghanistan versus those of other world powers who've gone in there and exited. And then second, HR, this is a question for you. I went back and looked at the Vietnam timeline. It's about two years and three months between the ceasefire and us pulling people out of the embassy in Saigon. Is there any way to avoid the same outcome in Kabul? So take it away, historians. Well, yeah. I'll go first. It's a, a, a familiar enough story, uh, successive 
empires uh, going back centuries, even millennia, have tried to govern uh, the country that we now call Afghanistan. It's incredibly difficult uh, because it really isn't a nation state uh, waiting to be called into being. Uh, its terrain makes it extraordinarily difficult to govern. Uh, its uh, social or ethnic uh, fragmentation uh, makes it extremely difficult to govern. Uh, in truth, governance in Afghanistan is, is tribal or, or clan-based, and all attempts to impose uh, a, a model of governance, whether it be colonial or national, have, have failed. Uh, Britain did uh, a good deal better than the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, the United States has sort of fallen somewhere in between those two imperial experiences. I think the problem uh, in, in each case is clear. If you give up uh, on Afghanistan, it becomes an even bigger problem uh, than it was when you were trying uh, to run it. And this is, I think, the central uh, American uh, problem that uh, we're abandoning Afghanistan 20 years after uh, it became a really serious problem uh, for us, a problem that produced the 9-11 attacks. And, and we're deciding to sort of sedate our memories uh, and be the United States of amnesia and act as if that could never happen again, where it's very obvious that if you let the Taliban take over Afghanistan and restore their uh, tyrannical theocratic regime, uh, the place will be uh, uh, the headquarters of Al-Qaeda uh, pretty quickly once again, and we'll be waiting for the next 9-11 to happen. Uh, look, the United States is bad at empire. I wrote about that uh, nearly 20 years ago in a book called Colossus, and nothing that's happened uh, since I wrote that book in 2002 three uh, has has changed my mind. If anything, the US has lived up entirely to my anticipation that uh, a combination of deficits would lead it to abandon Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the, the manpower deficit, the fact that people just don't want to spend terribly long in places like that, even if they're in the military, six months is enough. Thanks very much. Can I go home now? Uh, the fiscal deficit, which we've talked about on this show many, many times, but which is larger than it ever uh, in in time of uh, of, of peace, uh, and then that kind of attention deficit disorder that American voters suffer from, which leads them to lose interest in these enterprises after about after about four years. Uh, and I'd, I'd add to that uh, the history deficit. We just don't like thinking historically in the United States, and so we just struggle to imagine that that this could be just another familiar story of imperial failure with a likely cost coming down the pike towards us. HR? Yeah, I would just say, I agree with Neil, the only thing worse than ignorance of history is the, is the abuse of it. And if you don't know the history, then you can readily abuse it. And I think that's what has occurred with the misframing of, of the nature of the war in Afghanistan and our involvement there. We weren't there as an imperial occupying power uh, in, in recent years. There was an elected Afghan government, not a particularly effective Afghan government. As, as Neil mentioned, all Afghan governments have struggled to try to consolidate power centrally, but that's okay, right? Afghanistan has been a decentralized state that worked well enough for Afghanistan since at least the middle of the 18th century, you know, and, and for long stretches until, you know, the Sour Revolution really began uh, really to, to, to mire the Afghan people and its society into decades of, of conflict. It's a society that is certainly that is traumatized uh, from those decades of conflict, especially the Soviet occupation, the Mujahideen era resistance, to the Soviet occupation from 80 to 1988, the devolution of security there from 92 to 96 into a very destructive civil war. And then the brutal occupation of, I would say, the Taliban was an occupying force against the Afghan people. And so what Americans just didn't seem to understand, and our leadership did a really terrible job of explaining it to the American people, is that the stakes are high for some of the reasons that Neil alluded to, is, is that you know, to, to get to a, you know, to a sustainable outcome uh, that, that secured our main interest, which is to prevent jihadist terrorists from, again, gaining access to safe havens and support bases there. We know that makes them orders of magnitude more dangerous. Uh, the, the American people heard a narrative uh, that, like, you know, that, hey, we failed in Afghanistan because Afghanistan, as I mentioned before, like, hasn't become Denmark yet. But it didn't need to become Denmark. I think it's important to, to recognize that in 2019, at the time of the capitulation agreement to the Taliban, 
we had 8,500 troops there, you know, who were advising Afghans who were taking the brunt of the fight. We we're taking very few casualties there at, at the time uh, and, 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 and have taken none uh, since then. And, and we were enabling Afghanistan's fight against the Taliban, which made it impossible for the Taliban to really make significant military gains. And so what I thought of our sustained commitment there is an insurance policy against what we are seeing now, uh, a, 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 a defeat uh, of, of the Afghan security forces uh, underway that is already leading to a humanitarian catastrophe of colossal scale that will lead to a return of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan um, in the form of a Taliban government over at least large portions of the country and an organization that is completely intertwined you know, with, uh, with other jihadist terrorist organizations, including uh, Al-Qaeda. And so it, it really, what is frustrating to me is it was the misunderstanding of the nature of the war and, and the level of commitment. You know, we, we weren't, exa- I don't think the American people were exhausted. You know, I, I think, you know, this mantra of end, endless wars, it was kind of catchy uh, and it was parroted by all of our major news media. Uh, but but it didn't reflect the level of effort. I mean, 8,500 troops, you know, that's a lot if you're Ecuador, you know, but it's not a lot if you're the United States. Um, $22 billion a year and going down is not a lot uh, if you're the United States, especially when you consider the burden sharing of other coalition uh, countries that had more troops than we did in Afghanistan, and we're sharing the cost as, as well. So was Afghanistan going to be Denmark? No. Was it going to be a violent place? Hell Yes. Uh, but but was it worth the commitment in the long term? I think yes. And I think the American people would have supported it if, if any of our leaders maybe across three successive administrations had made the case. President Trump made the case and people forget in August of 2017. And and uh, and then I think, you know, people talked him in uh, to this capitulation uh, agreement with the Taliban, uh, which was which is lamentable, not only because of the severe humanitarian political and security consequences, uh, but but also because we actually empowered the Taliban on our way out. And, and to get to your point, you know, I, I think that, you know, with the, the withdrawal from from Vietnam, um, you know, was was demanded by the American people. I don't think this was demanded by the American people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also it was it was a, a long process of, of negotiation, but also trying to structure the South Vietnamese armed forces uh, to be able to continue to combat the, the, the Vietnamese communist forces. And they were successful in doing that uh, to a certain extent until Congress pulled the plug completely uh, fr- from the effort. And that was really in the form of support from American air power. So contrast the defeat of the Easter offensive in 1972 with American air power uh, to, to the communist offensive in 1975 after the U.S. cut off all support. I think that there is an analogy to be made there, uh, bill, uh, but sadly, it's happening on an even more compressed timeline. Uh, and and you know, are there consequences to losing wars? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I think there are, and I, and I think our adversaries uh, and, and rivals will be emboldened by this. I think it's worth remembering, you know, that it was at the height of of U.S. popular opposition to the Vietnam War uh, that Kim Il Sung said, "Hey, it's time to start an insurgency in South Korea." And Americans, I think, forget that in 1967 to 1968, there were over 300 attacks uh, in, in South Korea uh, uh, committed by, by, the, by the North Korean uh, special forces. 15 Americans died and 65 were wounded in those attacks, far more than the casualty numbers in Afghanistan in, in recent years. And that was in South Korea. And then we've used this analogy before we talked about it in, in the last episode is that you know, we had a sustainable uh, commitment in Afghanistan, a sustainable commitment that was preventing what we're seeing happening, unfolding before our eyes now. It was well worth the effort, uh, but we talked ourselves into defeat there. John? Uh, this is why I love Goodfellas, because it gives me a chance to nail my friend's feet to the floor and ask them questions that have been bugging me for a while. And so I, I want to... There's a sort of three ranges of questions that I want to ask, and I'll I'll tee them up and you guys can, you don't have to answer. You can just tell me what you think is interesting to comment on here. First of all, what's what's remarkable in the last couple of weeks is not so much um, the U.S. defeat. Uh, You know, we we said we were going to cut and run on a certain date and we cut and run on a certain date. It's kind of 
predictable what happens there. But the Afghan uh, defeat, the Afghan government, the, the surprise is how quickly the Afghan government forces are folding in the face of the Taliban, even though, as I understand it, they have numbers, they have equipment, they have all sorts of advantages. So, you know, Neil can go back into history and, and HR to military history, but I'm, I'm interested here in the psychology and, and mechanism of defeat, even when you are a superior force. I, I asked Neil to tell us about uh, Alexander uh, beating Darius of Persia, who was clearly a, uh, a much better equipped, but then maybe we don't have to go back into history. That's clearly what's going on. Uh, even if you, an individual Afghan soldier, are sitting out there at your checkpoint uh, and you've got a good, good gun and you know, you're, you know you're, your team has more stuff, if you can sense the defeat coming and the barbarity on the other side, and you can sense that the guy next to you is going to turn and run as soon as he can, you turn and run as soon as you can as well. Uh, I, I was listening to uh, one commenter on, uh, on NPR, who's kind of a defender of the current administration, saying, well, they just don't have the will to fight. They have the means, but not the will. Well, it's not about will. It's about having something worth fighting for and have, having the organization. How do you, we, we study victories, and I want to know what our military historians can tell us about defeats, even from a position of strength. Second, well, this, this is, I, I would just say, can I, ask, I mean, quickly, and, and maybe we'll take this one at a time, John. But you know, I, I think you know this is this has always been the case in, in, in war. And yeah, I'm thinking of John Keegan's book, Neil, The Face of Battle, and what he what he found is he looked at war, really warfare in 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 uh, in battles in the same sort of piece of terrain across four centuries. Is he he concluded that what that what battles have in common is human. Uh, the struggle of men attempting to reconcile their instinct with self-preservation, with the achievement of some aim over which others are trying to kill them, and and you know anyone who's ever fought knows that you know as as Napoleon said right the moral is to the physical is ten to one as as Clausewitz you know said that 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 winning in 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 war means convincing your enemy that your enemy has been defeated, and and I think that what we did is everything we could do to defeat ourselves and our Afghan allies psychologically. You know, over the years, right? Announcing the timeline for our withdrawal, saying we're leaving, we're leaving, and then ultimately, you know, really kind of pulling the carpet out uh, from underneath them by going from sustained air support for their operations to now probably two aircraft, U.S. aircraft over what Afghanistan at, at any at any one time. Now, well, why were the Afghans not able to get something they're worth fighting for? Let it's not me just chip us, in. Let me chip in with an answer to this. Yeah, sure. I, I wrote a, an, an article years ago about prisoner taking and prisoner killing. And this gets us back to incentives, John, to yes. talk in your language. Uh, the key to getting an army uh, to surrender uh, is essentially giving them incentives to lay down their weapons and making it clear that the, the cost of surrender is relatively low and the cost of fighting on is going to be very high. And the Taliban have been doing that successfully. But in order for the collapse of morale to happen, there has to be a fundamental shift in the uh, objective constellation of forces. And that has also happened for the reason HR has said. American withdrawal, the final abandonment of the project by the United States, has removed that thing on which the Afghan security forces could, could rely. My good friend Richard Engel, the reporter, brave man, has often put himself in the line of danger to report on wars, told me uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago about what he saw when he was last at Bagram, uh, the, uh, the huge uh, uh, airbase, which was crucial to the US effort in Afghanistan. Uh, and he was there just uh, uh, about a month ago. And Bagram is uh, is a deserted uh, and demoralizing place, uh, a huge dumping ground of American uh, material, of, of uh, vehicles, uh, uh, of ration packs. And uh, the Afghans' uh, security personnel there guarding the airbase were mainly engaged in going through the rations to remove uh, the candy uh, from the rations. He said it was a site of such utter demoralization that it no longer surprised him that the Afghan security forces were laying down their weapons. This, this, I think, is the key. It is now very obvious to the average Afghan soldier that the costs of continued fighting exceed the, uh, the costs of surrender.
Yeah, if, if we know we're going to lose, and the only question is when, why should I bother putting my life on the Who line? Wants to I, be I, the last I would, I would tell you guys, I would tell you guys, though, and and I, I co-authored an op-ed on this. I mean, it doesn't have to be over right now. I, you know, I, I think what is important to note is that the Taliban's regenerative capacity had been in Pakistan, but but as we disconnected from the fight against the Taliban, this is going back to 2019 when we signed this capitulation agreement with them, they began to stockpile weapons, arms, pre-position of fighters uh, across the North in particular, because they wanted to take away really the option of the resurrection of a Northern Alliance again, a, a Tajik and Uzbek based Northern Alliance against the, the, you know, the Pashtun majority ta Taliban. And, uh, and, and so they, they, they launched the simultaneous offensive in the North and they also stockpiled weapons you know, across the country for what they, they want to, to take over the population centers. Now they're concentrating on the outsides of the cities, and they are extremely vulnerable to air power at this point. I mean, I, I, if we wanted to, we could knock the crap out of the Taliban right now if we had the will to do it. And, and I think because they have violated you know, every sort of you know, hopeful uh, you know, wish, I guess, by Zal Khalilzad and the, and the others who went uh, to sign this cap capitulation agreement, um, th that we ought to not feel bound in any way by an agreement that they're not adhering to. So anyway, I just wanted to, to mention that it all is not over if we had the will to commit the resources. It's more difficult, obviously, because we don't have aircraft on station there now in Bagram. And it's a long transit flight, which means you, you have to refuel. It means you have, long, you have shorter station time in terms of pilot duty day and so forth. Um, but we have the means to apply our asymmetrical advantage against the Taliban. Everybody always wants to talk about, well, you know, the our enemies are fighting us asymmetrically. Hey, we have asymmetrical advantages ourselves. And, and sadly, we're just not using them uh, against this enemy. Let me follow up on both of those. Uh, actually, one of the most heartbreaking things I heard on the psychology of it was uh, uh, Afghan soldiers who weren't so sad about our, our the offensive air capacity going, but the medivac helicopter is no longer working. Uh, was really on their mind. If if they got shot, there's no they're going to just bleed to death out there in the middle of nowhere. No one can come get them anymore. Uh, that that seems psychologically important. But you you get here HR right to the central paradox, I think, of the American imperial adventure. Uh, you, we were not fighting ever to defeat the Taliban. And when the Taliban set foot in Pakistani territory, well, that, that's when we stop and, and, and we let them enter. We, we, if Hitler had gone down into Switzerland, which called itself neutral, I doubt we would have said, well, I guess we got to stop here right now and, and not prosecute this, this war anymore. It was, you know, you, you keep telling us the point of war is to defeat an enemy. And we stopped. Uh, we, we then became the standard American thing. Well, we want to restore the status quo, come to the negotiating table, begin the peace process, which, of course, the Taliban is completely uninterested. And that seems to be the central problem. Well, well I would say maybe they would maybe they would have been interested in it. Uh, you know, if, if we had convinced them they couldn't accomplish their objectives through the use of force. But how does it work, you know, John? I mean, you're an economist. You understand incentives, right? We say, hey, we want, we want a peace agreement with you. And by the way, we're leaving, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, doesn't, they're, 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 that doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, so that's, that's what we did. I mean, we did exactly the opposite. I, and I would say, you know, and of course, you know, this, this might be biased and so forth because, you know, I helped present this option to President Trump in August of 2017. The sustained and sustainable commitment we had was sufficient, I think, to really inflict a, a, a significant amount of losses in a sustained manner on the Taliban. But what was important about that is that it also removed the time constraint, right, to say that we're leaving on this timeline. And what was also important is, is we said we're no longer going to allow Pakistan to have it both ways. And I do believe the shift in the approach toward Pakistan was beginning to bear fruit. I think the Pakistanis were faced with, hey, hey your future could be a pariah state with a single state sponsor, namely China. That looks like North Korea to me, Pakistan, I mean, Pakistani army leadership. Is that what you're going for? Because that's the choice you have now. But we backed off that again. Remember when President Trump had Imran Khan in the Oval Office? I mean, this is one of these moments when I wanted to jump out the window. I mean, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was a complete reversal of what we had presented and the president understood as the best option. I will also say that in August of 2017, when we presented the options to the president, 
it was not my job to advocate, I, I saw as a national security advisor, for a particular course of action. It was my job to give the president multiple options. And when we presented those to him, we started with withdrawal because that's what he was predisposed to do. And when we laid it out, we said, okay, if we do this, here's what happens. And what we laid out in connection with what, what happens is, is, hap is unfolding right now. And faced with that reality, he made a much difficult decision than the decision to which he was predisposed. And so I, I think after that, of course, there are many Iago figures, others in his ear, trying to convince him otherwise. You have the resurgence of, of kind of a neo-isolationist sentiment. This is the Charles Koch-funded think tanks and retrenchers and so forth. Um, and I think they carried the day. You know, but, but again, they didn't think it through. These people don't think through the consequences. And they didn't see our involvement there as already winning, right? Because we were preventing this outcome from occurring. Uh, and Afghanistan was on a long, slow, multi-generational path, maybe, uh, to no longer being awarded the international community. But it was a sustainable level of commitment. You know? that, that, that is, this is the classic problem. We're not really fighting to win, to defeat an enemy. And we are not able to put in place something that people are willing to fight for. The Afghan government is not something that its soldiers are willing to fight for. In the end, the South Vietnamese government was not something its soldiers were willing hey, I, to fight wouldn't, I wouldn't, for. I wouldn't say that, John. Okay, so, so let me tell you the story of Major Azimi, okay, uh, whose father uh, was a Mujahideen fighter, a, a renowned Mujahideen fighter out of, out of Herat. Uh, and, and, uh, and he fought with Ishmael Khan, you know, against, uh, against the Russians. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you walk into his house in Herat, there's a big Mujahideen era mural of, of him and his son was inspired to go into the Afghan military to help, to help, uh, to, to help, uh, preserve the, the freedoms that the Afghan people enjoyed after 2001, after they lived under the hell of the Taliban, which he lived in, uh, as, as, you know, grade school, you know, high school student. So he joins the military, he goes to the Turkish military academy. Uh, he joins the army and then gets into the into the very selective Afghan special forces. And he is leading a, a team of, of about 30 special forces uh, soldiers in Faryab province, um, where the Taliban had after we stopped, uh, you know, stopped our, 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 our reconnaissance and intelligence capability, stopped going after them, marshaled major forces who then attacked them and they fought to the death. Right. All of them, all of his unit, including Major Azimi, fought to the death. Uh, you know, so I, I would just say, John, that they that these are people who do have the will to fight. They were worthy of our support and we abandoned them is what I would say. And ultimately, the biggest cost of this decision will be borne by the Afghan people. And just uh, the way that the cost of the abandonment of South Vietnam was borne by the people of South Vietnam. Uh, we forget the extraordinary harshness with which the uh, North Vietnamese communists imposed their will on South Vietnam after 1975. And we're going to turn a blind eye to the appalling way in which the Taliban will avenge themselves once they have control of a significant part of, uh, of Afghanistan. And this is one of the most shameful features of modern American history. Uh, interventions that are not sustained, uh, that, that are wound up for essentially domestic political reasons, often frivolous domestic political reasons, and the consequences which play out in the countries that we abandon, we basically don't pay any attention to. And I do feel a terrible pang of, of shame and indignation when I think about what is going to befall uh, the men, women, and children, uh, and especially the, the girls of Afghanistan, uh, for whom education is no longer going to be a possibility for whom child marriage, forced marriage, uh, and all kinds of forms of abuse are going to become the reality as the Taliban tighten uh, their grip. And this is the kind of thing my wife, Ayan Hersi Ali, cares passionately about. It's awful what is going to happen uh, to Afghanistan. And although we use phrases like humanitarian disaster, I believe they've been largely stripped of their meaning by overuse. We have to think about what this means uh, for people like us who just have the misfortune uh, to have been for a time uh, allies of, of the United States it is not a great advertisement for the commitment of the United States to peoples in countries where it intervenes. 
So gentlemen, again, we the signal, we're running out of time, but we do have time to tuck in one last question. And it is simply this, if I could task each of you with being in charge of American foreign policy, briefly tell me what a sensible Afghanistan policy would look like. Uh, John, well, why don't you start? Well, hey, hey, can I just answer something from Neil just quickly? Uh, the Afghan people did not suffer the misfortune of American intervention in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the Afghan people benefited from the end of Taliban rule in oh, ways that, that in, in ways that no, have, I agree no, with no, that. no, I, I, I know you would, I know you would, but, but yeah. I think this is a story. It's a story that's not told, Neil, and I think it's one of the reasons why we didn't sustain our will there. You know, are the transformations in Afghan society? But, but, but I, I want to get to Bill's question. I just wanted to. I know you didn't mean that. I just wanted to clarify that that uh, you know that that none of, I, none of the Afghans that I knew, <laughs> and I believe you know certainly ninety percent of them would say that, that it was a misfortune that Taliban rule ended in 2001. Absolutely. And interestingly, a left-leaning uh, economic historian, Adam Tooz, recently published statistics uh, on the improvements in uh, the Afghan uh, quality of life during the period of, uh, of the American uh, presence. Uh, and so even people on the left can see just how much Afghan society benefited uh, from the intervention after 9-11. My, my point is just that we're throwing all of that away and condemning uh, the population of Afghanistan to uh, renewed misery under Taliban rule. And that that is the thing that's deplorable. Now, Bill, your question is, what what do we do now? I mean, it's a terrible thing to, to be asked. I mean, uh, I mean, if HR, uh, who actually had the role of advising a president on foreign policy, was suddenly to find himself uh, it must be a, a nightmare of yours, HR, back in that job, uh, offering a president options after the wrong decision has been made. I mean, what options are there at this point? I think we heard HR say that there still is an option to try to slow the advance of the Taliban using air power. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but but we're really at the point of, of having only terrible options to, to choose from. And that, that is in itself an illustration of how bad a policy error this is. Let's get John's thoughts and then we'll close out with HR. John? Well, I don't have any answers. I have questions today on this one. And my next question was gonna be, how does this resonate in the rest of the world? How does this resonate in Iraq, Iran, Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, China? Um, is, you know, is this, is this, do we believe we have something worth fighting for? Are we the next Afghanistan? Uh, and I think the answer to Bill's question is, um, not one I can do in 30 seconds, but we keep doing this sort of thing over and over again. We keep saying, don't do it unless you're gonna do, do it seriously. And, and, and then we bail out at the last moment with horrendous results, both for the people involved and for our reputation in, in trying to steer other things in the right direction. So uh, we gotta rethink the whole project and, uh, and, and how we get out as well as how we get in. So HRO John asked a good question. Why don't you close the show by answering that? What about the collateral effects of this? Well, I think there are, there are there are going to be massive collateral effects, right? And 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 those effects are, I think, emboldening our adversaries. As I mentioned, I mentioned you know, the other the analogy of Kim Il Sung taking advantage of U.S. discontent over the Vietnam War in the '60s, but I think you see adversaries in, emboldened just broadly, and I think that includes China, includes Russia, but it also particularly includes jihadist terrorist organizations. We have to remember that after our disengagement from Iraq in December 2000. 11, that set conditions for the rise of Al-Qaeda in Iraq 2.0, ISIS. ISIS, within several short months, found itself in control of territory the size of Britain. It recruited 40,000 fighters, and it became the most destructive terrorist organization in history, conducting attacks not only across the Middle East, but all across Europe, inspiring attacks in the United States, shooting down a, a Russian airliner, right? So, so we are in for, I think, an intensification of the jihadist terrorist threat and an emboldenment of, of, of our enemies. If I were advising, you know, uh, the president uh, on this, I would say, you know, <laughs> talk to the American people and say that all of, all of the assumptions on which our policy was based have proven to be false. The Taliban is not going to share power and enter into a negotiated agreement. In fact, all these people all the time say, oh, there's no military solution in, in Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban seems to have one in mind. Right. The 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 uh, the other uh, the other element of self-delusion is that there's this bold line between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Don't take the U.S. government's word for it. Just look at the U.N. report that just came out last week that says these organizations are utterly intertwined uh, with one another. Well, how about the assumption that the Taliban, you know, maybe they'll just impose a more benign form of Sharia 
Ask, you know, the government officials who are being lined up and summarily executed. How about my friend's unit that was surrounded and their bodies mutilated after they were killed in Faryab province? Ask, you know, the girls who were who were bombed out of their school and then were blown up with secondary devices, uh, you know, by by the Taliban in the in the in the, uh, in the Zara community. So, I mean, you know, I, I think all of the all of this is just self delusion, and, and and these assumptions turned out to be false. So, what the hell do you do now? What you have to do is recognize there are no short-term solutions to a long-term problem. And what you have to, to do, I think, is, is do whatever you can to stabilize the situation militarily and secure a multinational international agreement to support the Afghan government uh, in a way that gets us slowly on the path to sustainable security and stability. Okay, easier said than done. But it is doable. And I think that case can be made to the American people as a better alternative to what we're seeing now. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. All right. But, but you asked me what, what I would advise. Okay. But so, sorry. Okay. That's all right, HR. Uh, that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. Fear not. We'll be back soon in a couple of weeks. And we're going to devote the next episode to you, our loyal viewers. We're going to dig into our mailbag and answer your questions. So if you have a question for Neil or HR or John, all three of the Goodfellas, send it to us. Here's how you do that. Go to this website, go to this URL, hoover.org forward slash ask Goodfellows. Let me repeat that for you hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows. Send in your questions and we'll get them to you and we'll do our next show on viewer mail. We're looking forward to it. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you later this month. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.